We're coming to the end of James now, James, James 5. Just to, to recap what I've been saying earlier, particularly in the study on chapter 1, I've suggested that James, the letter of James is a follow-up to the letter that James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the early church, sent to the whole brotherhood of believers in Acts 15. And the problem was that the, the, the church was about to divide because the Jewish Christians, who initially were the majority because of all those thousands baptized on the day of Pentecost, but they had a problem with accepting Gentiles who were getting baptized unless they were circumcised and unless they agreed to keep the, the whole law of Moses. And so a compromise was reached whereby they didn't need to be circumcised, they didn't need to keep all the law, of Mo- <coughs> the law of Moses, but they had to be sensitive to the conscience of their Jewish brethren, and they had to remember the poor Jewish brethren. And Paul in Galatians 1 talks about that and says, that thing I was very forward to do. And yet there's a theme now throughout James of him appealing to these Jewish brethren, because he's writing, I think, to... Uh, rich Jewish brethren uh, throughout the uh, Mediterranean world he's writing to them telling them that they should be mindful of their poorer Jewish brethren so it's as if he's following up on his letter by saying that look there's been all this division but let's get down to personal spirituality because whenever there is conflict within the brotherhood we all tend to lose personal spirituality. And that's why throughout the letter he's talking about things like control of the thoughts, control of the tongue, very, very personal things, the inner process of temptation, the need to fight against it, from being filled with God's word and God's spirit, and not living a materialistic life, all these kind of practical exhortations. And yet they're all in the context of there having been this great big upset And everyone would think, "Uh uh-uh, here's another letter from James. He's just written to us, telling us about this compromise. Okay, what are we going to have now? And instead of referring specifically to the Acts 15 agreements, he tries to redirect them to personal spirituality, to spiritual mindedness. And as I say, there is a theme about looking after your poorer brethren. He criticizes them in chapter 4 for not paying their wages to their poorer brethren and for being materialistic, etc. And he continues that here in chapter 5, verse 1, very clearly talking uh, to rich Jewish brethren. And he's basically saying, look, you're going to be condemned because of your attitude to your poorer brethren. See verse 4, not paying them your poorer brethren, their wages, etc. Verse 5, living in pleasure and being wanton. And this, as I say, has all got to be seen against the, the backdrop of his earlier letter where he has written to the Gentiles and said, look, you can come into the brotherhood, but uh, the deal is that you must uh, be thoughtful for your poorer Jewish brethren and try to support them. And Paul took that very seriously and went around trying to get support for those poor Jewish brethren, etc., from the Gentiles to try to enable the, the spirit of the agreement in Acts 15 to work out in practice. And yet, paradoxically enough, the Jewish brethren, the richer ones, were not actually looking after the poor Jewish brethren. They just want to get the Gentiles to to do that, the Gentile believers. And so, 
he urges them pretty strongly here that unless they are going to change their attitude, they are heading for condemnation. And I like the way he uses these present tenses in verse 2. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. He's clearly alluding to what uh, Jesus says, Matthew 6:19 to 21 Don't lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust does corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so th- these people were not doing that, and so he says your wealth that you've got is corrupted and your nice clothes are already moth-eaten. It's as if he's saying, look, just see yourselves outside of time for a moment. Try to see from eternal perspectives. See yourselves how God sees you. The deception of materialism and material possession is that we think it is forever, when it is not. And he's saying it is already corrupt. And he says in verse 3, your gold and silver is, is rusted is corrupted, is cankered, it's rusted. And yet the very characteristic of gold is that it doesn't rust. That is why people like gold, because it doesn't go rusty. But he says, yes, it is already. And so we really need to take this seriously, because we live in a world where there is a huge emphasis on laying up wealth for yourself. In the old days, when there was an extended family system, that was your insurance policy. You got old or sick, well, your family would somehow look after you. But we're now cut adrift from that in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, Slowly, society worldwide has cut themselves adrift from the extended family. And it's literally everyone for himself. And if you want to uh, insure yourself against the rainy day ahead, well, you better just build up personal wealth. I mean, these days you can't even get a pension scheme like you used to um, even 20 years ago. You can't do that. All you can do is to pay into some fund which will uh, invest your money on the stock exchange or or whatever. And hopefully, possibly, when uh, you come to uh, older age or you come to need it, there's a pot of money theoretically waiting for you. So the whole spirit of everything is to heap up, to store up for yourselves. And that mentality was there with these rich Jewish brethren. Now, in chapter 1, he says that they were the brethren who had been scattered abroad. So these were diaspora Jews, not living in the land uh, of Israel. And so maybe they were in a similar position to us. They were maybe cut off from their extended families. They didn't have land. They were traders, as he says in James, you're going from one city to another trading and forgetting to say if the Lord will. So they were, in essence, in a very similar situation. And interestingly, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15, Paul talks about the need to be generous to poor brethren. And he's, he talks about the manner. And he says, the manner corrupted by the morning unless it was gathered and shared out. That's his interpretation of uh, Exodus 16, 18, and 19. And you've got the same idea here. Your gold and silver is already rusted. And so this idea of corruption of financial wealth or material wealth, you've got it in 2 Corinthians 8.15 and you've got it here in James 5 verse 3. He's saying if you don't use it, you lose it. 
and that is so true of wealth. Maybe not ultimately, but if you come to the end, in the sense that you can come to the end of your life and still have a big, uh, big bank, bank balance and wealth and all that, but you personally have lost it because you died. And he's saying that more than that, it's rusted, and that rust shall be a witness against you. In other words, at the day of judgment, this will be taken into account. And he emphasizes the bizarre thing of heaping treasure together for the last days. Now, in, a, in another picture, he, in another metaphor, he says it's like feeding yourself fat when you're about to be slaughtered. Uh, verse 5, you have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. So the reality of death is ultimate for each and every one of us. So why therefore heap together wealth, particularly when there are others in need? And he says there in verse 3 that the rust of gold and silver will eat your flesh as it were fire. Well, fire is a picture really a metaphor for the condemnation of the wicked at the day of judgment he's used the same idea earlier in James 3 when he talks about the tongue and he says the tongue is a fire that's set on fire of Gehenna that's kindled by Gehenna it's as if our words can be if they are the wrong words they can be the very fire that will destroy us at the last day and so he's saying here about wealth that's hoarded up that that rust actually is a fire that will condemn us at the last day. And so, really, we are living out our condemnation now, if we hoard up wealth for ourselves. And you may say, well, that doesn't apply to me. But are you sure it doesn't? Because it is perhaps a tendency for the poor to do this hoarding up even more passionately than the person who is already wealthy, by reason of their position in, in life or what they were born into or, or whatever. This applies to all of us in one form or another. So, in a sense, our position at the Day of Judgment is partially going to depend upon our attitude to wealth. That does not mean that you can buy your place in the kingdom, not at all. But if your life, as Jesus says, Luke 12, 15, uh, consists in the abundance of the things which we possess, then we are just like the rich fool. Uh, simple as that, that you heap it all up and then you die and that's it. Now the idea of heaping up treasure is to be found also in Romans, in Romans 2, verses uh, 4 and 5. And we showed earlier in, in these studies on James that Paul, particularly in Romans 2 and Romans 4, is alluding very heavily to James. And I've said that uh, that's particularly the case in James 2, when James talks about faith and works in Abraham, and Paul talks in Romans 4 about faith, works in Abraham. Um, it's not that he is contradicting James. He is building on what James has said. He's not contradicting him at all. He's giving maybe a different perspective or fleshing out the, uh, the picture. So in Romans 2 verse 5 he, he talks about Jewish believers treasuring up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath. And here in James 5 verse 3 he talks about heaping up treasure for the last day 
which is, of course, the day of wrath, the day of judgment. And so, really, by heaping up treasure, we could really be heaping up condemnation for ourselves. And uh, the point has been made that this uh, heaping up treasure in verse 3, the Greek really means to hoard, um, or to reserve. And as I say, this whole idea of reserving for a, a rainy day... Uh, This is the basic mentality, I think, which means that a millionaire isn't satisfied with one million, he needs two million, and then after she's got two million, she might need four million, you know, because of, you never know what might happen. And of course, we do know what might happen in the sense that our destiny is ultimately with God, and even humanly speaking, the... you know, the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the strong, etc., in in this kind of thing that uh, you can be generous, generous all the way through and then suddenly you get a windfall and suddenly out of the middle of nowhere you're left a load of money or whatever and you can be mean and mean as mean can be and then you lose it all with, I don't know, some crisis that, that happens so then gold rusts let's remember that it might appear not to but it does in the very end And he goes even further in verse 6. He says, You have condemned and killed the just one, and he does not resist you. Well, that sounds very much like the language of of Peter uh, in the very beginning of Christianity, which, of course, James would have been very involved with, telling the Jews, You condemned and killed that just one, Jesus. And so... I think he's saying that your attitude to the justified in Christ, and again this is Acts 15, that the uh, the context anyway, uh, that the the Gentile believers were justified in Christ. He he says that uh, by condemning others you are killing them, and he's used that idea before in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, where he says that you kill, and you're making war within the brotherhood, not literally, but Again, Matthew 5, to hate your brother, as the Jews were, it seems, the Gentile brethren, this is to kill. Division is war, uh, etc. So he's saying that your attitude to those that are in Christ is your attitude to Jesus. If you condemn and hate or kill uh, those that are justified in him, that's what you're doing to him. You are aligning yourself with the Jews that killed Jesus. And I love that bit. And he does not resist you in this life. This is the whole uh, mystery, I suppose, of spiritual life, that it appears that you can do what you like, act how you like to people. And there's no great sign up in the sky telling you not to do that or the wrath of God is upon you for that. He doesn't resist you. You get up the next day and do what you want. Get up the next day, do what you want. And he does not resist you in this life. But the whole point is that a day of judgment is coming. Now, continuing again, verse 9, don't grudge against one another, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Now, this again is very much uh, the idea of grudging against another is again the problem of Acts 15, the Jews and the Gentile believers with a grudge against one another, the Jews particularly uh, against the the Gentile believers. And we saw it in chapter 4 
that the root cause of all this is what he calls envy or, or jealousy. And this is the root cause of all this kind of uh, interpersonal division, ultimately. It's not usually about theology. That, that may be the, the cloak that it's dressed up in, but ultimately it is about jealousy, and it's about envy and, and grudges and settling old scores. So again, as is typical of James, he tries to lift this problem that they had to a higher level. When he says in verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. So there he is trying to appeal really against interpersonal friction, and it was not just between Jew and Gentile, it was within the camp of the, uh, the Jewish Christians, there were the hardliners, those who claim they came from James, although I don't think they really did, they just claimed that, who said you mustn't break bread with the Gentiles, and the liberal Christians like Paul who said yes, you must, uh, if you don't, then you don't get Christianity at all, you don't need to keep the law, that's all uh, filthy rags, it's all been done away, no need to keep that at all uh, if you believe in Jesus. And there were divisions also within the Gentile Christians. There were those who started, like in Galatia, to go back towards the law. Those who got influenced by the Judaist element within the Brotherhood. So there was all this division. And as I said before, it seems to me that one of the key reasons why people fall away is ultimately their poor reaction to argument and dissonance within the Ecclesia. That's why I keep emphasizing this, and that's really why James does. And in his lovely way, he says, look, confess your faults one to another. And I think he's saying that as an antidote to divisiveness. If you've confessed your faults to another person, you're not then going to start uh, kicking people out of fellowship, etc. And if they've confessed their faults to you, you also are not going to take too well seeing them cause uh, cause division. You know, if, uh, if a brother has confessed to you that he had an affair with another woman three years ago, and then he starts up a big campaign or disfellowship someone who's divorced and remarried or whatever the, whatever the issue is, well, probably he's not going to do that if he knows you're sitting there knowing that he's confessed to having an affair and all the rest of it. Um, this is a way towards ecclesial peace. That, that is the context, as I say, in which James is, is writing. And he says, pray one for another that you may be healed. Well, it could be that people were being struck down with physical illness because of their uh, sinfulness. That could, could be the case. Um, you've got an example, of course, of Ananias and Sapphira and Jesus threatening in, the, in one of the letters there to Thyatira that he will strike certain people in the ecclesia with, with death. And I think... Paul may be alluding to it in Corinthians when he says, this is why many are weak and sickly among you. That people were literally being struck down in the first century by the Lord for poor behavior. And in this case, he says, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, if there is no uh, benefit in praying for another person. If God is going to judge each of us purely on the basis of our own behavior, then there is no point in praying for each other. You just better pray for yourself. But the fact that we are continually told to pray for others, 
including for their forgiveness and healing, indicates that in the final algorithm, as I would put it, of human salvation and God's work with human beings, the prayers and intercession of third parties really can affect the final destiny of others. In some cases, of course, up to some extent within certain uh, invisible limits that, that God alone knows. But you've got a classic case there in Mark 2.5 where Jesus looks at the sick man, the paralyzed man, and, uh, and says to the friends that because of their faith, he healed that man. So the faith of a third party, third parties in that case, led to the healing of a person. And so really we can affect the eternal destiny of others. And the fact that that is true means that we should be like Paul in every one of his letters talking about, I'm praying for you all the time. Pray for me, please, because your prayers for me can affect my eternal future. And I likewise must do that for you. So we should be a prayerful community. And again, in the Acts 15, James context, you know, if that's the spirit that that is amongst us, you tend not to divide over third parties. We're having a division because you fellowship those who fellowship uncircumcised Gentiles or whatever the, the latest issue is in our, in our contexts. And so he brings Elijah before them as a classic example, verse 17. And he says, look, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, don't say, ah, yeah, that was Elijah. I'm sort of different. I'm not so strong. You see, I've got all these uh, issues in my life. No, he's saying, don't think like that. Because he had the same nature as you do. And yet he still prayed that it might not rain. Now, in the context, is talking here about praying for those who have fallen into sin. Well, Israel had fallen into sin at the time of Elijah, and he prays, of course, that it might not rain for three and a half years. Why did he pray that? Well, the implication here, uh, and I think also in the record in 1 Kings, is that he prayed that it might not rain because he wanted Israel to repent. And when he prays again verse 18, and the heaven gave rain, this was of course the triumph on Carmel, where I think that he perceived that they had repented and it wasn't just, oh yeah quick whiz off a prayer, I mean he prayed seven times, if you remember um, no answer the first time nor the second time, up to the uh, seventh time, so then it wasn't just dashing off a quick prayer, oh yeah let it rain I mean, this was really intense prayer, and I think that's why he runs before Ahab. Um, because he feels that Ahab has repented, and he was, as it were, as the uh, Elijah prophet, as the herald of this new king, a repentant king. Um, so then, the point is that he prayed for others' spiritual blessing, and for their repentance. And don't forget, Elijah himself suffered the three and a half year drought to the point that he nearly died and he had to be fed by ravens as you know um, and he did that all because he wanted them to come to repentance he didn't pray for there to be a drought and then whiz off out of uh, Israel so he didn't have to suffer the effect of it himself 
And the AV margin makes the point in verse 17 here that Elijah prayed in his prayer. So there's prayer and there is the real prayer within that prayer because prayer is really very, very personal and intimate. Psalm 64 verse 1, David says, Hear my voice, O God, in or within my prayer. Your voice, your real voice, is within your prayer. And you know, some people are better at verbalizing than others. Some people can pray very nicely, put the words together. Other people can't. But that doesn't mean that the person who's not so good at verbalizing doesn't you know, pray acceptably. Because prayer is within you. It is in you. And then he says, verse 19, If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins. We could not have any clearer example of where we can affect the eternal destiny of others. He may have Daniel 12.3 in mind, they that be wise shall shine as the stars, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars. We can turn others to righteousness. There's a lot of parallels between James and 1 Peter. And the parallel here is to 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer, that is, watch out for each other in prayer, and above all things have fervent charity, fervent love among yourselves. Now that is, verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. So the fervent love that Peter talks about is the fervent prayer that James talks about, and then Peter goes on in verse 8 of 1 Peter 4, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. And that's just how James finishes here in verse 20 of James 5, and shall cover a multitude of sins. And I'm sure he's alluding, don't forget he's writing to Jews, he's alluding also to Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 9.20, how Moses intercedes for Aaron, and God spared Aaron really because of Moses' prayer and intercession for him, and they did the same, of course, with all of Israel. And so we really can affect the eternal outcome of the destiny of our brethren. Okay, within certain limits, uh, but most of our brethren are not hard-bitten atheists or people who've uh, really turned their back on God. They're simply weak. And within those uh, frames of uh, reference, those, well, they are invisible limits. God alone will judge. But we can influence their eternal destiny 1 Peter 4 in this parallel passage talks about fervent love covering the multitude of sins here fervent prayer and it worries me that we don't seem to have much idea just as society has no idea of what the word love really means it's not just you know, words of course if you really fervently love you will fervently pray and the ferventness of fervency of prayer is after the pattern of Elijah, he's saying, seven times with his face between his knees, begging God. This is really how it should be. So then we're there in the position, really, of those folks there in the first century who were caught up with this uh, division 
over Jews and Gentiles and James is saying look don't lose track don't lose sight of personal spirituality and reflect what the Lord has done for you his saving work, his intercession for you in loving intercession for others